Our scripture today comes from Deuteronomy 21 and 25. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother for a full month. After that, you may go in to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then the brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his, father, his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has his sandal pulled off. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great things about uh, preaching in Deuteronomy is I don't have to have people go, oh, I've heard a sermon on this one before. Uh, well, before we consider this passage, these passages any further, would you please uh, join with me in prayer? Father, uh, as we have sung on previous occasions, your word your words are wonderful. They give us life. Even ones that sometimes seem confusing and obscure, you, you speak them to us for our good. And so we pray for that now, um, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us the ability to hear, uh, that you would lead us, uh, that, you would, that you would help us to take the yoke of Jesus upon our shoulders that we might find rest. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I just kind of alluded to at the end of uh, the prayer, I want to start with one of the most famous statements that Jesus made in the middle of his ministry, where he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, for my, 
yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. As I said, it's, it's one of the more well-known things that Jesus said. It, in some ways, is sometimes some of the most comforting words that we hear. And yet, I suggest that oftentimes, it's also one of the most confusing for many Christians. Because I think many Christians can hear that and say, I believe in Jesus, and I, I earnestly believe I, I love Him, so why do I feel so exhausted if Jesus promises rest? And so I want us to just kind of start by listening again to what Jesus is saying. Come to me, all you are weary. Learn from me, he says. That word learn actually is the same word that's used, or very close to the word used for disciple. It's be my disciple. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. That yoke language was actually fairly common in that time, and it's the idea of mastery and service. Jesus is saying, allow me to be your leader. Become my apprentice. Learn my strange way and you will find rest. In other words, Jesus is not saying rest come to those who believe the right things about me. He's not promising that rest comes to those who feel the right things about him. He's saying rest comes to those who learn his strange way and follow it. The rest he promises is a rest that is found through this distinct lifestyle that Jesus offers through putting on the yoke of his leadership, we are told, we will slowly learn to find life lighter, easier, and we will experience rest. Our study in Deuteronomy, um, especially over these last couple of months, has been really kind of devoted to understanding what is this strange way of Jesus, this yoke in which we can find rest. Because Jesus very clearly says in his teaching that what he does, what he calls us to is the completion, is the fulfillment of all that the law of Moses intended. Which means if we understand Deuteronomy in the light of Jesus, we can see all sorts of things about what Jesus intends for us, the way of Jesus that he calls us to. And that's what we're trying to understand. What is this strange way of Jesus and some of the details of life that Deuteronomy invites us to? And really in these last few weeks, we have been thinking about two yokes. We haven't used that language, but We've been talking about two different kind of ways, two different kinds of masters. You might think, to begin with, when, when Nick preached a number of weeks ago on, on this, the yoke of Jesus, we might say, the yoke that God calls us to of, of knowing who God is and allowing Him to relate to us on His own terms, where we're having a real relationship of worship. That's the yoke of Jesus. But there's always been implied in that the alternative that we spoke about, the, the yoke of control or uh, trying to manage our relationship with God, whether we're talking about in the Old Testament the idea of having a little idol, or whether we talk about the modern spirituality where it's kind of perfectly curated to meet our own needs. There is that alternative. Or last week when we spoke about household, the, the yoke of Jesus, the way that God calls us to of this, this interconnected bonds of community and knowing each other and, and growing in love in these micro-communities that we've said, that is the way of Jesus. But there was the alternative that was also implied, and that is the way of maintaining privacy and separateness and autonomy. 
There are these two different ways that we are seeing put before us in Deuteronomy. And I think in some ways we could simply put it that the yoke of Jesus and the yoke of our desire. Because that's what we're talking about here. We're, We're talking about either Jesus or allowing what we want to be what determines what we will do. I mean, that is in some ways the very core of the decision, isn't it? When we are facing life's choices, how do we make them? Do we look inside of ourselves and say, what matters to me? What do I want right now? And then do whatever we are told? Or do we look outside of ourselves at Jesus and we say, what does Jesus want? What does it mean to have his yoke on us and do whatever we are told by him? Therein are the two yokes that Deuteronomy is inviting us to consider. Now, to be clear, when we're talking about desire, we are not saying that desire is a bad thing, that we should try to kind of get rid of desire. That's not Christianity. That's Buddhism. Christianity speaks of desire being something given by God, where when it is in its rightful place, it can move us forward in all the right ways. But when it is in its rightful place is the key. When our desires, what we think we want, becomes our master, all sorts of mess can come. I mean, let's just think about this for a moment. When, when we are just kind of trying to follow our heart and satisfy what we want, how, how does that go for us? Or, or let me put it a slightly different way. When do you think it is that we will finally be satisfied in pursuing that? When will it be when we're trying to fulfill our desires that we'll finally say, there, I've got it. I have enough. Is it going to be the next promotion? Or or the next stage in, in, in life? Is it going to be after the next vacation? Is it going to be after the next major purchase that we're looking forward to? If any of us are honest, we realize, no, the answer is no. There will never be a time if we're just trying to chase after our desires where we say, that's it, I am full. Because that's not the way it works when we follow our desires. What happens is we're on this endless treadmill. We're always pursuing and always pursuing. And what do we get from it? We get workaholism. We get scrolling endlessly on our phone. We get binging Netflix. We get exhaustion because it is not a yoke that is good. And what do we get on the other hand? Again, this is what we see in Deuteronomy. The yoke of Jesus is the yoke that invites us to Sabbath, to savor, to stop and rejoice in the goodness of God and delight in the world. The yoke of Jesus where desire is not our master, but Jesus is our master, is a yoke that brings us rest. And I don't think there is any clearer kind of specific example of the difference in the way of seeing things about these two yokes, about the difference between desire being our master or desiring serving our master, who is Jesus, than when it comes to sex. Sex and sexual desire is, is something that is obviously so central to our culture today and the way we think of things. And we should recognize from the outset that sex and sexual desire is something that, like all 
God-given desires is good. It comes from God. It is meant for something very good. And when it has its right place, it is significant in what God intends. But when it becomes a master, it makes a mess. Now, I realize, you know, I keep on using this language of the strange way of Jesus, and this would be one example where Jesus' way seems strange. To speak of curbing our desires, of, of limiting them, of subordinating them to something higher and greater sounds to many old-fashioned, repressive, unrealistic. I mean, we are in a day where it's, it's considered virtuous to be honest about what we want and to pursue what we want as long as it's between two consenting adults is the one command. And as long as we satisfy our desires, not only are we doing something fine, we're doing something good. It's going to be less human if we don't just allow that to be what drives us, which is another way of saying that our sexual desire should be our master. But how is that going for us? You know, there's this interesting book that came out about six months ago um, called Rethinking Sex, a Provocation, written by a Washington Post columnist named Christine Emba. And, and the book is fairly short, and it's really geared towards answering or asking a simple question. That is, have the promises of sexual revolution been fulfilled? So tracing back to the 60s, she, she identifies certain things that were kind of said that as, as we kind of experience this liberation, these good things will happen. Society will be healthier. Women will be more equal to men. And people will be happier if we remove the repressive way of seeing sex. And what the book does is it goes through interview after interview with all sorts of people who are smack dab in the middle of this kind of new way of seeing sex. And again and again, what we see is every single promise is shown to be untrue. In, in a society of Tinder where people are just swiped left or right, they become more and more viewed like objects, and that destroys society. In a society that pretends there is no biological difference, what ends up happening is more of the burden of what's happening here is being carried by women than men. It's not an equal thing. All we need to do is see me too to recognize that. In a society that says this is what we want, there are so many counterexamples that point otherwise. One of the most tragic things I found in reading this book was the number of interviews where people said something along these lines. I know I'm not supposed to say this, I know that probably everyone else is happy with this, but I have to say when I look at the way things are, it really makes me sad. And what we are seeing here, I think, are the effects of when something that is never meant to be the master has become the master. You know, sadly, the Christian church has not, I think, done a fantastic job of providing a clear alternative. On one hand, the church has identified rightly Scripture's boundaries that sex is supposed to be kept within marriage and marriage alone, but unfortunately, sometimes it seems like that's the only thing it focuses on, rather than developing a vision, a different vision for what God intends sex to be. And as a result, sometimes the message just seems to be, save yourself for marriage, and then you can have all of the sex and all of the enjoyment and all of the desire you want, and that's when you'll experience fulfillment. Which in some ways implies that you're still supposed to let your desire be what drives you as long as it's within marriage, which somehow supplies, implies 
that marriage really exists for the fulfillment of our desires, which sets the stage up for disappointment, but even worse, it can set things up for the potential of, of sexual abuse, where, where one member of the marriage, oftentimes the husband, will, will think of their spouse as someone whose job it is to satisfy their desires, no matter how uncomfortable that person might be. They become pressured into things, and that is the opposite of how God has designed things. That is abuse. That is sin. That is wrong. And that is what happens when we say, our desire is our master. And what I want to suggest is that Scripture invites us to ask a really important question that oftentimes people don't even ask, and that is, what is sex for? If this is given by God, if He created us with, with sex and with sexual desire, what what does he intend it to be for? Or, or to use the language that we started with, if we are seeking to walk in the strange way of Jesus, if, if his yoke is upon us, what does he intend for us in this area? What is sex for? And there's so much that could be said, and we do not have time to say all of it. I want us to just notice one thing, one theme that comes through clearly in the Scriptures, and that is sex is for a loving household. And I'm going to hit pause for a moment because if you weren't here last week, I want to just briefly talk about household. We talked about household last week and, and said in Deuteronomy, it holds out this vision of the household. God shows that the household is really important. And, and we specify that the household, we're not just talking about the nuclear family, we're talking about more than that. And Andy Crouch, writer, uh, uh, writes about this in a helpful way. And so let me just read what he says to help us to kind of have a vision for what we're talking about here. He writes, a household is a community of persons who may well take shelter under one roof, but also, and more fundamentally, take shelter under one another's care and concern. They provide for one another, and they depend on one another. Built on more than an isolated pair, but encompassing few enough people that all can be deeply and truly and persistently noticed and seen, the household is perfectly sized for the recognition we all were looking for the moment that we were born. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the household. And it's, it's central in Deuteronomy, and, and it's, it's seen as and identified as this kind of training ground where we learn to love others and we learn to love God. It is the way that humanity is designed to flourish and live well with each other. And, and what what I want us to understand is that when we think of sex, we should think of how it relates to the household, that it is for the household, which I suppose is kind of obvious at a birds and bees level, right? I mean, if we think about how the household is formed, well, sex is the consummation of marriage, and marriage is one of the ways that someone from outside the household is added to the household, and the result of that procreation is the other way. Literally, a household in the Old Testament, which is largely along family lines, is only coming into existence through sex. But when we study Deuteronomy and the Law of Moses, including Genesis 2, what, what we, are, I think, are meant to see is something more than just that basic fact. And that is that, that sex and all that is involved in it is meant to form. 
It's meant to help shape the culture of the household. It's meant to reinforce all that makes the household good. This is an observation that I didn't first notice. It's Chris Wright, who is this Old Testament theologian and commentator on Deuteronomy. And he's saying, you need to understand, when you see all of these commands about adultery and sex, you need to realize they're driven by this larger idea. How do we uphold the household and make it the way it's meant to be? There's at least three ways that we see this. We don't have time to look at all of the passages. There's over 40 verses in Deuteronomy alone that are speaking about these. But I just want to highlight three things in the way that sex is meant to serve this greater goal. First, we see that sex is meant to to deepen the the bonds of commitment between people. The bonds of commitment within the covenant of marriage specifically. So the first time we see sex being spoken of is in Genesis 2, where it speaks of how the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. A new unit is formed within the household. And then it says, and the two shall be one flesh, in a simple statement describing both the act of sex and its significance. But through this this mysterious moment of mutual self-giving, There is this deeper bond of connection and commitment so that over time, this couple moves from just being two people who both speak of themselves as I to also being able to speak of themselves as we, as the two become one. Which is why, on the other hand, the Bible again and again is so vehemently opposed to adultery. Because that very act, that very practice that is meant to reinforce and strengthen the bonds of connection and commitment when it is brought outside of the bonds of marriage can pull those very things apart. Adultery has the ability to ruin marriages and to ruin the household. The household is sacred to God and in the same situation as with murder, when it is destroyed, the consequences from God's perspective are severe. Sex is meant to reinforce and strengthen that commitment to each other that happens within the household, within marriage. Secondly, sex is meant to strengthen that that experience of knowing and being known and through that being honored. Genesis 2 says, they were naked and not ashamed. And our passage, believe it or not, the first one that we read actually points us in that direction as well. It is a bizarre passage, isn't it? And it begins in so many different ways, with a woman experiencing degradation. Her her people are conquered by Israel. They are taken captive. Someone sees her and finds her attractive and wants to bring her home so that she can be his wife. Now, notice when it's being read, none of these things are being endorsed. None of these things are being commanded All of these things are being assumed. When these things happen, we are told. And if you were here before, you might remember this this image that I said of, of what's happening here is God is addressing people in the middle of a mess. And he is slowly moving them out. And this is a good picture of the mess they are in. This was how things were done in that day. It wasn't just Israel. Any nation, if you conquered some people, those people became your objects. And you treated them as less than you. And you could do with them whatever you wanted. And when you see that as the baseline, you need to recognize that everything that God is instructing here is to move them away from that. To bring dignity to the person who has been brought low. We see that in at least three ways when we understand what's going on. 
First, we're told that she's supposed to shave her head and pare her nails and change her clothes, which seems weird, until we realize that what God is saying is, you see her in one way. I want a reset. She is not to be seen as a foreigner, as a captive. You are to see her now as someone who is a human being. Secondly, she's to be given a full month for grieving, which is the customary time for mourning. You don't think of her as having her own separate desires, but I am telling you, you must. You must give her space to be who she is. Give her space to have her own emotional life separate from you. Give her space to mourn. And third, if you divorce, you should recognize that you have wronged her. She should not be treated like a slave or a piece of property, we're told. She needs to be given the rights that any other human being must. Again, when you understand the trajectory, what you are meant to realize is this push to saying, if you are going to have this relationship where you are bound to each other in marriage, you must see her as an equal and give her dignity. And again and again, whenever we see these different strange commands in Deuteronomy, if we understand the background, we see that's always the way God is moving, that you must see each other as human beings. You must honor them in this relationship. It becomes even clearer, of course, in the New Testament when you get to Ephesians 5, where the relationship between a husband and a wife is likened to Christ and his church, where the husband is called to so see the beauty of his wife that in his love he draws that beauty out and makes her even more fully herself. And meanwhile, the husband is to be, sorry, the wife is to see the husband with respect. Both see each other and honor each other. That also is what sex is designed for. And third, we see that sex is designed to turn the couple outward. Which I realize seems like a strange thing to say because in our day, there is nothing more private, more completely disconnected from the public good than sex. But that's only because in the last 50 or 60 years or longer than that at this point, we have stopped so closely connecting sex with its natural outworking. With the birth control pill, we don't see sex as always naturally leading to procreation. And of course, it doesn't always even before that. But when a couple came together, there was always this awareness of this possibility for further life beyond themselves. And so even in that very act, there was a training where they could recognize that their life, their love, had an outward focus beyond itself. One of the ways that we see this, that the the couples coming together, or even the whole point of sex is beyond just itself, it's for the sake of, of building up the household, is in one of the most strange to us commands of Deuteronomy, right? The one that we just heard, the the practice called levirate marriage, where if you and your brother were living in the same home, and, and your brother's married, and your brother dies before he leaves an heir, it is the other brother's responsibility in an arranged marriage to take the widow as his wife, to give the widow, ideally, a son, so that the line, the life of the husband who has now died can continue, so that the household can be built up, so that there can be integrity. It was so important that if, if a brother's like, I'm not interested in this, and said no, he would be in this public ceremony spat upon by the widow, his sandal would be removed, and he, she would say, this is what happens to someone who doesn't fulfill their responsibility. It was a matter of honor to build up one's household. And I can't think of a more clear illustration of the point that I'm trying to make, that sex has a larger goal than itself. 
In this situation, a person was called to subordinate their own desires and choose to love someone else so that they might serve the household. Because sex was given by God for the household. It's meant to form the couple. As, as they are within the bonds that they are supposed to experiencing, it, it, it teaches them to be more deeply committed to each other. It teaches them to see each other more and honor each other. It teaches them to be more outward looking. And as that happens to them, it spills over. Because if you are married, you know that when you are learning how to love your spouse, it's not just your spouse that you're learning how to love. You're just simply learning how to love. And so as people are experiencing and being trained through this process, if you will, it shapes the very culture of the household. So that the household becomes a place more and more that experiences the bonds of commitments to each other. The household becomes more and more of a place where people are known and seen and honored. The household more and more becomes a place that recognizes that the love they share is supposed to be a love that moves outward to give life to the world. Do you, do you see the paradigm shift that we are supposed to understand here? In our day, marriage is seen as something we engage in to fulfill desires. Even the having of children is something we've seen, has been seen to fulfill desires. But what we're being told here is actually desires are given to bring about marriage, to bring about children, to serve the household. Sexual fulfillment is not the end goal. The end goal is love. A community that learns to love each other where desire serves that greater end. In the New Testament, that's kind of brought up to an even higher key, if you will. Because Jesus speaks frankly and he says, at the resurrection, at the end of all things, when the, kind of like the new world begins, there won't be marriage means there won't be sex. There won't be procreation. And the reason is, it won't be needed. Because before God, we will have the capacity to love each other intimately, committedly, knowingly, and we will no longer need the aid that the biological bonds of the old age once gave us. Which is why the New Testament household moves further and further away from just the biological connections, as we spoke of last week, incorporating people from all different walks of life because there is a different bond that goes deeper than the bonds of blood, and that is the bonds of Christ. There is a capacity to love each other within these new households that are the house churches. And this is also why we, we begin to see a new vocation being elevated as another way in the pathway towards love. Yes, marriage is one calling. Marriage is one way in which God uses marriage, uses sex to train people to grow in love, which is the larger goal. But in the New Testament, we see celibacy, singleness, is another way that God does the same thing, that, that singleness becomes its own form of testimony where there's this, this recognition that there is a greater reality that is in the future where they will not any longer be part of a married or non-married relationship. And singleness is seen as its own way that God uses with, with unique freedoms and abilities of singleness to grow in love for the household. When we get to the New Testament, not only do we recognize that 
that sex isn't the end goal, it's just a means to an end, we actually recognize that sex isn't even necessary. You do not need to have sex to experience human fulfillment, we're being told. To have human fulfillment, what you need is love. This is the strange way of Jesus. So where does that leave us? I realize that throughout this time there are like a bajillion application points I could have touched on but didn't have an opportunity to. And there are all sorts of questions that we haven't had a chance to answer. And that's partly because of time, partly because of audience. I joked with Nick this week, he's like, let's see what happens if I try to preach an entire sermon without a single point of application. How will that go? Um, but I do want to just kind of pull back as, as we conclude. And I want to bring it back to where we were before because where we started and where I think I want us to end is to think not just about sex, but because sex points beyond itself to the larger question of how we relate to our desires. Because this is where Jesus' will for us feels especially strange. We are so much in a time where we're told, follow your heart, listen to your desires, do what makes yourself happy, whether sex or anything else. And, and what we're being told is there is a better way. I remember hearing someone say recently, and I thought this was helpful, that oftentimes our strongest desires are not the same thing as our deepest desires. Our strongest desires are often not the same as our deepest desires. Because think about this. Think about certain moments, what the strongest desire you have in that moment might be. Maybe in a certain moment, your strongest desire is to punch someone because they said something really obnoxious. Or maybe it's late at night and it's to watch that next episode of The Crown or whatever series you're binging. Or maybe it's to stay in bed rather than to get up and do the exercise that you wanted to do. Or maybe it's to look at the phone rather than spend time in prayer. Or maybe it's to engage in that one-night stand. So often we have strong desires that aren't really what we want. Which is the problem with allowing our desires to be what lead us because so often we don't really know what we want. But Jesus does. Jesus knows what he, we want and he knows and he loves us and he desires to give us all that we need and all that we want as he extends his grace and his forgiveness to us. But for us to experience the rest that he offers, it means trusting. It means believing that the one who gave his life for us and died for us is worth entrusting our lives to. Because Jesus calls us and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you. And I will give you rest. 